said right. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event of the evening. Now welcome on a very special guest. He has been the play-by-play commentator for our hometown Atlanta Falcons since 2004 and is one half of the Packer and Durham show on the ACC Network, Wes Durham. Wes, welcome on to Division 2. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. Appreciate you asking. Wes, first things first, let's get to some surfacing news from this week. So it was reported that Julio Jones could be on the move as our GM is having trouble with clearing up cap space. Do you expect the team to move on from Jones despite not being able to receive draft compensation in this year's draft? Uh, I don't know that. Uh, It's, you know, I think it's a complicated situation, but I think it's also one we knew that was coming. Uh, Atlanta was obviously, you know, impeded in free agency by lack of salary cap space. Uh, I think that's why, you know, you saw a guy here and a guy there. Um, You know, they weren't able to really go big fish, big game hunting, uh, as they have in some years in the past. I, I think the Julio Jones situation, though, is one that you have to look at not only 21 guys, but you got to look at 22 and 23. Um, there are a couple different circumstances surrounding it, too. Number one, it can't happen. The, the trade cannot be consummated until after June the 1st for salary cap purposes. And it's really important for Atlanta that that be the case because that relieves like 20 some million off the cap. Uh, you know, all the news about it has come out this week. It was first written about about three months ago. Uh, I want to say late January, right around the Super Bowl. I think Jeff Schultz and Tori McElhinney of the Athletic first wrote about it for sure. Maybe have been Tory, but nonetheless, I, I think you have to understand it can't happen until after June 2nd. I think the second part you have to understand too is that, you know, there have been plenty of teams that have gone through this and I think that's one of the things Atlanta kind of knew it was going to battle. Terry Fontenot and Arthur Smith with dealt some tough cards to play. Um, and they're trying to do the best they can to get out from under it. Right now, Jones is a, is a prime candidate because you can leverage his value with somebody else. And, yeah, it might get you a draft pick in 22. might get you, you know, not only the cap space, but it might get you some more inventory. And I say could be. There could be something that's done now that would impact after June 1, but I, I think that's a, that's a tough spot to be in when you're a team that's trying to do something in late April that you're hoping that you can still transact in June. So my guess is if it happens, it would happen after June 2nd simply because of the cap space it would give you. It doesn't make a lot of sense financially to do it right now. Right, and Wes, uh, one of the few players that is actually under contract in 2022 is quarterback Matt Ryan, but the Falcons have still been in attendance at almost all these quarterbacks pro day, and this draft is loaded with quarterbacks, as you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've been at Trey Lance and Justin Fields pro day specifically. Who will more than likely probably be on the board at number four? So um, are the Falcons seriously considering drafting Matt Ryan's replacement, or is Terry Fontenot putting on a little bit of a front in an effort to entice quarterback-needy teams to overcompensate at that number four pick? I don't know. I, I don't know Terry that well yet. I might have a better feel if it were still Thomas Dimitrov, but, but given our landscape and society, it's been hard for me to, to even meet Terry, let alone uh, talk to him about what he's thinking it for. Uh, I think what you have to look at with Matt Ryan is, is that you know, along the lines of Jones for two years, at least Matt Ryan's going to be here because it doesn't make any sense to move on. Okay. That's number one. Number two, I think if you've got somebody you think in 2023 can be your quarterback, then, then maybe you draft them. 
Uh, I, I tend to believe Atlanta's going to go a different route at four. I'm also of the belief, guys, that, you know, you got nine picks this year and a team that's probably not going to be a playoff contender for at least a couple of seasons. Now, who knows? It's still the NFL. May want to look at their inventory in the draft because, remember, everybody keeps saying, well, it's a bad defensive line draft, right? How many times have we heard that in the last 10 days during uh, what I like to call the nitpicking and smoke screening portion of the uh, run-up to the NFL draft? Uh, I think that there's still a possibility that, although I think it's doubtful now with what the Dolphins and 49ers did, I still think that uh, Atlanta could move in that first round. But at four, um, guys, I got to be honest. I I think if they draft, I think they're taking Kyle Pitts. Only because I think that's somebody who can make plays for you. Now, is it smart to take a tight end at four? There's a lot of pro football logic that uh, seemingly doesn't stand up to that sometimes. But I don't know. He did it against high-level competition last year, and he did it against everybody. And so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by Kyle Pitts at four. I'm also intrigued about maybe getting more inventory in this year's draft as much as you are maybe able to acquire in what, 22 and 23 down the road. Right. And uh, I mentioned previously about Matt Ryan, and uh, you've been fortunate enough to cover Matt Ryan's career since he entered the league back in 2008, where he was selected number three overall by Thomas Dimitrov. So you've seen him win an MVP, and we're in Houston commentating Super Bowl 51 alongside Dave Archer. I, for one, am entirely against the team moving on from Matty Ice, but is it fair to say Matt Ryan potentially has another good few years left under his belt? Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's easy to say um, because I think he's the kind of player who will have another good year or two or three. Um, you know, his, his age is really just a number. Uh, he keeps in great shape. Uh, it's funny, I don't think he's gained – more than about seven pounds since he came out of Boston College. Uh, and for that, because he does such a good job taking care of his body in the offseason, he's committed to it. Um, he's committed to the process. He loves the grind of tape. I mean, the times I've been around him in the offseason, there's always seemingly a step to where I either know he's going to California to work out with Dato or he's uh, doing some degree of film thing or they're doing a team event where they're all getting together to, you know, to kind of go through a captain's practice for lack of a better term. And yeah, I think Matt has embraced Atlanta as his home. I think he's embraced it as his professional legacy. And um, yeah, I do believe he has two or three really good years in front of him. The number one thing I, I question is, you know, can we get more continuity in the offensive line to help him to protect Matt Ryan and to, Oh, by the way, run the ball. Uh, Atlanta's not been particularly strong, as you guys know, in the run game since uh, really since Super Bowl 51, maybe the year after. That's very true. So, Wes, aside from Trevor Lawrence, you saw a very good amount in the last couple of years working with the ACC Network. Who is your favorite quarterback prospect in this draft and why? And I've also lived in Cartersville since 2015. So, I saw him as a, as a sophomore in high school. So, uh, yeah, um, my favorite prospect probably beyond Trevor uh, I saw Zach Wilson play a couple games. He, he's really talented. Um, I, I would say Fields and Lance are interesting, interesting, uh, interesting guys, interesting concepts, because I think they're different. Um, I tend to think Trey Lance is more like Patrick Mahomes than Justin Fields. And everybody wants to take the Fields-Mahomes comparison. I think Justin Fields has a lot more of the Michael Vick type play in him. Uh, and I thought at Ohio State last year when they really struggled at times, he had no problems tucking and running. 
Um, I think it will help Justin. I thought his two years playing for Ryan Day were really important. Um, I think Ryan is an excellent, excellent football coach. I thought that was a, a smart move and a tough situation from Georgia to go to Ohio State for fields. But to be honest with you, if I had to pick a guy that's probably going to have as much impact behind Lawrence, I may pick Lance only because I think that – and Mac Jones too, because I think Mac Jones is more like Matt Ryan if you follow me on this, guys. I think Mac Jones, in a typical pro offense, you know, maybe say like Green Bay or somebody like that, or, um, you know, it, it's going to be really interesting to see how this goes because I know a lot of people are thinking San Francisco is going to pick Mac Jones, and they may very well take him. But I talked to somebody who has told me that they have been enamored with Trey Lance, and I'm not – terribly confident that the Mac Jones talk getting a smoke screen for Trey Lance, but that's, you know, that's what we're in this type of this time of year. That's what we're getting is a lot of smoke screening and idea floating to see what public reaction can be sometimes. So Wes, let's go back to talking about the offensive line. So the Falcons anchor up, anchor up front, Alex Mack moved back with his former OC in San Francisco and Kyle Shanahan, but sure. many analysts see Matt Hennessy as the future at center. How much yeah. are you buying into this? And do you see Fontenot loading up with offensive linemen this weekend? Uh, it's a good question. I think that if you had a dominant offensive lineman, Panay Sewell is probably a, a dominant offensive lineman. I think the uh, Elijah Tucker youngster from Southern California is also a guy who I think can really help him. But uh, do you pull that trigger at four? If Atlanta were to move back, I think that might be the go. Um, that or, you know, is there like the Micah Parsons deal, the linebacker at Penn State, or is there an edge guy? See, that's the problem with what is perceived to be a weak defensive line draft. Matt Hennessy, in my book, though, is going to be the starting center next year. Um, in fact, I think they've got four of the five spots ironed out. The real question is, you know, what can they find at left guard to kind of solidify it? Or do they have to take a left tackle and then ask Jake Matthews to move inside where he can play guard? Um, Rashawn Slater at Northwestern also pops off the page, but they've got to get the offensive line addressed. They signed Josh Andrews, obviously, from the Jets. They got Willie right here right now. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that ultimately that's the answer, uh, but I do feel pretty good about the four other guys. And I think Hennessy had a lot of on-the-job training late last year when Mac was hurt. And I'll go back to what we said at the top, fellas. The, the salary cap situation was the Alex Mack deal. Um, Alex Mack, Keanu Neal, DeMonte KZ, Ricardo Allen are all the virtues of the salary cap being what it is for Atlanta. So, Wes, with that uh, limited salary cap, the Falcons did make a few interesting moves this offseason. Uh, they acquired Mike Davis, a pair of free agent safeties, and kick returner Cordell Patterson. Right. So those moves the team has made, which one of these players do you see making the biggest impact this season? I think Deron Harmon is probably the one, at least for me, early and Eric Harris. I think those two guys are going to be asked to really not only play big roles on the field, I think they're going to be asked to play big roles off the field. Um, I think Eric Harris comes here as a proven playmaker from Oakland or Vegas. Uh, Deron Harmon, to me, was great in New England. Uh, I think he's a guy that, you know, kind of had a placeholder in Detroit and played for an organization that wasn't terrible on defense, but at the same time never gelled under Matt Patricia. The one I'd tell you to keep an eye on is Barkevius Mingo, only because I think Mingo kind of fills a gap for him. Um, and Dean Peace likes Barkevius Mingo a lot. And I think that's why Deron Harmon is here, too, is because Dean Peace realizes 
what he had in New England with uh, with Deron Harmon. But Mingo, to me, is a guy who can play kind of the – I want to make sure I do this. He kind of plays the DeAndre Campbell space – you know, the guy who can play in space a little bit. He can play on the end. He can do a little bit of that, that Devondre did. So I want to keep an eye on Mingo. And although we'll only have three preseason games this year, I think he's a guy that, you know, we've got to – kind of look at a veteran presence. And again, I think the guys on the field are important, but the off the field piece of this football team on the defensive side is also going to be really important because we know Grady Jarrett can really play. We're hoping Dante Fowler has a bounce back here. Uh, Foye Oluwakun, you can't measure the impact he and Dion Jones had together last year, but you got to get a little more steady defensively. And I think Dean Peace will throw the kitchen sink at teams. I mean, we're going to see Atlanta's baseline, believe it or not, I think be a 4-2. And uh, and who those two linebackers are going to be is going to be pretty interesting beside Jones and Aluikin. And when they change fronts, who are going to be the principals? And I think that's where Mingo really helps you. Right. And those moves are very interesting. And uh, new head coach, Arthur Smith, obviously we're going to focus more so on the offensive side of the ball. Arthur was able to revitalize Ryan Tannehill's career after he left Miami. Sure. Uh, what needs to happen for this offense to succeed in 2021, Wes, after a tough few years with Dirk Cutter calling the plays, a lot of inconsistency, and uh, a lot of blame that I feel is a little bit unnecessary falling on our quarterback, Matt Ryan. <laughs> well, you wouldn't be the only one who feels that way. How's that? Um, I would say this. Um, the, the running of the football is – I'm going to keep coming back to it. I just – I mean, every Sunday, Dave and I talk about the running of the ball and and how you can run the football to help Ryan throw it. And, you know, I like Mike Davis. I thought he was a workhorse guy a year ago, especially after McCaffrey got hurt, but he's one of just three running backs on the roster right now. And the other two are Cadre Allison and Tony Brooks James. I mean, they've got to find people to run the football guys and they've got to find a way to run the football. And so you know, I don't know what's going to happen with 35, and that's their second pick, right? And it's at the top of the second round. There have been a lot of good players coming in that range. But I think uh, Terry Fontenot and, and Arthur Smith, who wants to run the ball too, because remember, Arthur Smith probably has the best closer in the NFL in Nashville, right? I mean, Derrick Henry's an unbelievable running back. Um, but there are not too many Derrick Henry's hanging out in this draft. So if you think, let's, let's hypothetical here for a moment, right? And we can do that because it's the week where you can do anything you want and technically get away with it because the draft's Thursday. If you take Kyle Pitts, that allows Arthur Smith to play the two tight packages that he thrived with in Nashville. But the reason they thrived in two tights is because that second tight end was actually like a blocker. Well, with Hayden Hurst and, let's say, Kyle Pitts, you've got the receiver and the blocker in the tight end spot. But how's your running back situation set up? There's where I'm going with this. You've got to be able to sort out how you're going to be able to run the ball. Can you stretch the field? Yeah, sure. you got guys that can go get it, uh, principally Calvin Ridley. But you got other guys, too. Alameda Zacchaeus, Christian Blake, guys that Ryan's comfortable throwing the ball to. But I think it'll get really interesting to see just how Atlanta attacks 35. That pick will, that pick will essentially be the turnkey for what I think will be the rest of the draft for the Falcons. I couldn't agree more with you there. And a guy to keep an eye on would be uh, UNC running back Javante Williams, potentially, mm. if he is there. He's a potential workhorse in this, in this league. Um, if given the opportunity in Arthur Smith's offense, makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, I like your thinking. I like your thinking on Javante Williams. In fact, I said that earlier today. If he's available at 35, he's a perfect fit for what Arthur Smith wants to do, it looks like, offensively. And 
being Arthur's a graduate of Chapel Hill, it probably doesn't hurt Javante. He played at Carolina either. Right. And, uh, you know, like you said, it is going to be indicative on, you know, how the rest of the draft goes, the direction that they head with that uh, second pick there at 35. But, Wes, I want to kind of touch on the defensive side of the ball here with you a little bit. Last year, the Falcons drafted A.J. Terrell um, yep. in the first round. And I think he's on a path to stardom. Um, the guy looked really good at times last year. Started off a little inconsistent at first, but he really got it together there near the end of the year and did a great job specifically against Tyreek Hill despite that one play that occurred. Sure. Uh, if the Falcons were able to trade back, could you see the team drafting players like Alabama corner Patrick Sertan II or USC corner J.C. Horn? Uh, Sertan is very interesting to me. J.C. Horn certainly would fall in that category as well. If they, dry, if they go back, guys, I, I think we're looking at the, the offensive line situation. Um, Rashawn Slater, Panay Sewell, guys like that. I, I, I don't think you're burning the first round. Now, I could be wrong because, you know, Terry Fontenot has said, you know, best player available, right? Um, and I don't know how the big board looks in Atlanta, but one would think that, uh, that there's an opportunity there for, uh, to maybe see how this goes. But I, I still think if they, get, if they drop back, I think they're going offensive line. Uh, Micah Parsons of Penn State might fall into that category. And here's the other thing, too, and we, we touched on this a moment ago. One of these quarterbacks is going to drop. One way or another, one of these quarterbacks is going to fall. And, again, that's why I say, you know, the smoke screens are always dangerous. It could be Lance, could be Jones, could be, you know, who knows. Uh, I, I think the, the scenario fields could be the drop. Who knows? But I think one of them is going to drop, and there'll be a beneficiary somewhere along the way. But if Atlanta drops back to answer your question, I think, I think you've got to look at the offensive line category then. I absolutely agree with you. Tevin Jenkins is another guy in that uh, offensive tackle category. That's right. But, Wes, even with, uh, even with Drew Brees retiring from the division, uh, the NFC South should be very tough again next year. How do you see the rest of the division drafting, beginning with the Panthers at 8, Saints at 28, and then Bucks at 32nd? I think the Panthers may take the quarterback that drops. That would be my first inclination. Um, now, if it's Lance or Fields, you can almost write it down. But they are – the Panthers, the move for Sam Darnold is really, really interesting um, because you guys have seen this in, in the NFL. You've seen it, heck, I guess, with the transfer portal. We can say we've seen it in college too. Just the change of address can change guys, right? And let's be honest. We all know that Sam Darnold was the setup guy in New York. It was a bad situation, right? Um, I think it'll be really, really interesting to see who the Panthers take. New Orleans. Uh, I have no real feel for what the Saints are going to do. Mickey Loomis always plays it close to the vest, and they're picking late in the first round. Um, you know, there, there is a curiosity there with, with the guys they've had, Davenport, guys like that, that have made an impact the last couple of years for them. Um, you know, and, and what's the Winston-Taysom Hill situation going to be like, by the way? You know, how does that play out? Uh, Tampa, shoot, they won the Super Bowl. Those guys, I don't care what they do. They need to lose some games, not win games. Um, <laughs> You know, so, uh, you know, let's, let's see kind of what Atlanta does. But uh, the, the division is the best. I mean, it's like, you know, every year, Dave and I get out on the road, except for last year when we didn't do road games. And you talk to all these people around the league, and they're like, man, your division's really good. The NFC South, to me, just gets lost in the conversation with all the, the heritage teams of the NFL. Like, in the, we hear so much about the NFC East, and it disappoints you every year, you know? Um, 
And then, you know, every once in a while you'll hear that the North is really good and things like that or uh, that kind of deal. It just doesn't – it never really materializes. And so I'm, I'm as interested as anybody else to see what the South will be. I'm really interested to see the schedule. I wish we had the schedule before the draft because uh, sometimes I do think that plays into the way you're talking about your football team too. I'm a huge New York Jets fan. And obviously three years ago they selected Sam Darnold to be the franchise quarterback. I agree with you. I think reasons uh, – because of the franchise, things didn't work out, and obviously he'll be the guy, in, or looks maybe to be the guy in Carolina. So you think they still might go after a quarterback at eight? I think that, I, I, again, they've changed general managers, second year of a head coach. I don't think Atlanta and Carolina are essentially dealing with rebuilds here. Carolina lost their best player last year for, what, eight games? Christian McCaffrey was gone eight or nine games last year. He's their best player. Uh, they moved on from Cam Newton. Again, salary cap considerations. Um, I think Carolina, the possibility of them going after a quarterback. I also think, too, that Micah Parsons would be a great fit in Charlotte. Remember last year, they struggled with finding somebody to replace Luke Keekley, guys. You know? I mean, that's, that's a real deal. you got to figure out kind of how all that's going to work. And so I think as we move through this draft, there are a lot of things that are going to happen. The not – like Kyle Pitts apparently said on NFL Network on Tuesday that he expects the first four picks to be quarterbacks. I, you know, if that happens, then there's going to be, there's going to be some real intrigue as to when the draft starts. Everybody think, thinks it's going to start at three. Some told me it was going to start at four. Thursday night is interesting because invariably somebody falls into your lap like in double digits who you thought was going to be – like, for instance, Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith. That's a heads or tails situation, depending on your particular taste of a team. Uh, both can have major impact, but who's the first one off the board? Because whichever one it is, the other guy's a hell of a player. And one of them won the Heisman Trophy if you take Jalen Waddle. So you got to answer your fan base why you didn't take the Heisman Trophy winner and you took a guy who, you know, was injured a good bit of last year. So. Right. And that is going to be interesting. And, you know, one thing that I do find, you know, incredibly bizarre is the lack of second contracts that uh, first round wide receivers receive. Um, I read a statistic recently. It's like 22% of first round drafted wide receivers over the last some odd years right. um, have gotten a second contract. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a risky pick regardless. And uh, I'm hoping that, you know, the Falcons aren't in that, that territory there. Um, if they were to trade back to, uh, you know, end up taking a receiver. But, Wes, I do want to ask you, there are a lot of teams that are quarterback hungry. Um, right. You know, you could see a team, potentially the Broncos, the Bears, the Patriots. Out of those kinds of teams, what team do you most likely see moving up and potentially being a true trade partner with the Falcons at four? I think the Lions are – I think Lions, Broncos, and Giants are probably the three that I would, uh, I would look at. Um, I think Denver really has to sort out what they're doing at quarterback. And my guess is they probably want one of those guys. But they, again, though, when the Jets, I mean, I'm sorry, when the Dolphins and 49ers made that move, the 49ers surrendered so much in the draft to move up that I, I think you're looking at just this unbelievable type deal here where it's going to be, I mean, I, I just don't know that anybody's going to give Atlanta that kind of power for the fourth pick. And if you're Terry Fontenot, like I said earlier, you need inventory here, right? You need inventory. You need picks because picks are set in a slot. They don't go to the open market, right? They're not veterans who are going to hold out for more money because right now you don't have more money. Does that make sense? And I, I think that 
the idea where we're going here is going to be really interesting. And, you know, like I say, I think there are three teams, but guys, this thing, anything can happen in this deal, especially in the last 48 hours leading up to it. Dave and I are involved with DJ Shockley on a, um, on a uh, preview show that's going to air on atlantafalcons.com on Thursday night. And, you know, we're, we're taping the piece at one o'clock in the afternoon, but we're also leaving gaps in case there's a trade so we can go back and redo another segment if Atlanta does indeed make the move, right? I mean, because that's what happens on days like this. There's a lot of flutter and a lot of talk, but it's always fascinating to kind of see how this stuff plays out once you get going on the Thursday night. Wes, how many games have you commented for the Falcons since you uh, – since do you have a count? Are you like no. Steve Holman in town? No, I'm not, I'm not Steve Holman. I'm okay. not Steve Holman. I don't have a tote board, man. <laughs> I did uh, – let's see. I did – uh, 800 and some games at Georgia Tech in 18 years. Um, almost 800 games, I guess. Uh, I've done 20 a year for 18 years, roughly. Uh, my preseason arch would never let me count preseason, so I shouldn't say that. Um, let's see, I've done almost 300 games for Atlanta if you don't count preseason. How's that? And that includes playoffs and the Super Bowl game and stuff like that. So it's almost 300 games in 18 years, and that's just regular season and playoffs. Right, and uh, you've gotten to see some great football. And, uh, of course, you know, you've, you've been fortunate enough to, you know, commentate a Super Bowl. Um, sure. And I'll go ahead and just tell you firsthand, uh, Joe Buck got the silent treatment from me and my father when we watched <laughs> the Super Bowl. Uh, we did listen yeah. to you and Dave. And uh, I will tell you, it was uh, very enjoyable listening to the radio broadcast along with the game. It flowed perfectly, and we really enjoyed that. But, Wes, what is your favorite or most memorable moment as the broadcaster for the Atlanta Falcons? Um, the final game in the Dome, the NFC title game against Green Bay was awesome. Because, you know, rarely do you get to write the script the right way when you do a send-off like that for a building. Um, you know, I remember Miami closed the Orange Bowl playing Virginia and got beat like 38 to nothing on a Saturday night on ESPN. And they had all these former Miami players, you know, stand on the sideline. They're sitting there watching their own team get beat 38 to nothing in the last game in this, you know, fabled facility where Bernie Kosar won the national championship and all those great players played. Um, so for Atlanta to be able to dominate, who I thought was a really good Green Bay team that day, was pretty cool. And I'd say in the in the 18 years we've done it, it's it's probably been a special moment because we didn't have to sweat it out either, guys. I mean, we didn't come down to a last-second Matt Bryant kick or anything like that or somebody making a great catch or a sack or whatever. Uh, the other one, believe it or not, would be the game where they knocked the Panthers from the ranks of the undefeated because two weeks earlier they had lost so badly in Charlotte and they came back and, and beat the Panthers to hand them their only loss until they played Denver in the Super Bowl out in uh, San Francisco. So those are two that stick out. I mean, Matt Ryan's first professional pass to Michael Jenkins in, in 08 was great. Um, they won the game. Uh, you know, we had Michael Vick moments, Dave and I did early in our career. I mean, we had a Saturday night game, my first year doing the games against the Panthers where, you know, Dave and I got to watch Vick take him the length of the field and dive into the end zone. So it's been a really special relationship. And I think I can speak for Arch on this. We're grateful to Mr. Blank and Rich McKay because those two guys, since, uh, since we came on board in 2004, have been incredibly supportive of the things Dave and I do, not just for the Falcons, but they've also allowed us to, to do, you know, other things. I mean, I worked for Georgia Tech for the first nine years, and then obviously I went to the television in 13, and, you know, here in the last 
uh, you know, handful of years, eight years, I've been doing television for either Fox or Raycom or the ACC network and ESPN now, plus I'm doing a daily show for the network. So, you know, their, their support of us is, is really been second to none and they've made it a, an incredibly enjoyable relationship for sure. One thing about this city that uh, I always take a lot of pride in is the ownership that we have from the team. And, you know, you've even seen that translate over to the soccer side with Atlanta. Sure. United. Um, yeah. Wes, you mentioned your daily show with uh, Mr. Packer. So uh, I want to talk about that a little bit because you actually recently interviewed my guy, former Georgia Tech wide receiver Jalen Camp. <laughs> recently actually had 29 bench reps and ran a 4-4 at his pro day. Sure. Jalen's one of many talented ACC players that your casual fan may not really know about. Right. Give us a couple of other names uh, of some players that are around the conference to maybe keep our eye on in the mid to late rounds of this draft. Hmm. Uh, it's a good one. I think Cornell Powell, the wide receiver at Clemson, has helped himself immensely. Uh, a guy who I would tell you that probably not a lot of people know about, but I think is going to be a really talented player at the next level is Carlos Basham, the defensive end at Wake Forest. Uh, I love Boogie Basham as a player. I think, uh, I think he's, he's got all the physical skills. And then the one that I think is, uh, <laughs> is going to be interesting to watch is uh, DeMar Hamlin, who was a safety and corner at Pittsburgh. Uh, he was a talented, talented guy. And I think somebody will get a steal with him because he can play teams. And I think he can play free and he can play nickel in the schemes that Pat Narduzzi ran. And there are not many guys showing up to an NFL training camp who can play free safety and also understand the nickel principles. But Narduzzi teaches a pro NFL, a pro NFL defense. And I think Hamlin uh, has a chance to be a really, really good player at the next level. Wes, final question for you. So outside of football, we're also big college basketball fans. <laughs> Woody Durham was an absolute legend with the North Carolina Tar Heels for 40 years. Right. What was a favorite memory of your father while he was in the broadcast booth? Oh, gosh. Um, wow. Um, well, obviously, you know, when they won the national championships, 82, 93, uh, 05, and 09, those were, those were special nights for him. Um, in the 40 years he did Carolina. Uh, the, real, um, the real emotional treat for me has been in the three years since he passed away, I've had so many former Carolina players contact me to tell me stories about their interaction with my dad when they played. And many of those I'd never heard. So whether it was you know prominent players at Chapel Hill or guys that were walk-ons or just role players on the team, you know, those ties with my dad were, were really special to hear about. And it's been, you know, I think his friendships with a lot of those guys when he was still alive after he retired in 2011 were very special to him. And, um, you know, the eight points in 17 seconds in 1974 without the three-point line, that, that game to me, and I was in the building when that game happened as an eight-year-old. Um, and it's like Hank Aaron's home run at, at Fulton County Stadium. There were only probably 40-some thousand people at Fulton County that night. Now there were 4 million people that were there. Um, the 8-point and 17-second game was played in a building that sat less than 9,000 people. And my dad used to say he thinks there were 8 million people that were at that game. So um, it's, it's that game in particular is one that I'll always remember. And then, you know, he always was grateful for the opportunity to, you know, Michael Jordan's college career, he broadcast every game. Lawrence Taylor's college career, he broadcast every game. Um, you know, he got to see some spectacular players. And that's really the blessing of the business, guys. When, you, when you're fortunate enough to do what I've done for a long time, 
you get to see Julio Jones, Calvin Johnson, uh, my first year at Georgia Tech doing basketball, Stephon Marbury. Um, you know, a couple of years ago in television, I got to do the ACC tournament semifinal with Zion Williamson. Um, you know, he went 24 of 25 in two nights of the ACC tournament with games that I was doing. So those are the kind of moments you run into and you feel blessed as a broadcaster at the end when you get to, you get a chance to sit back and think about it for sure. Wes, this is a real honor for the three of us, and we cannot wait to have all those questions answered this weekend. And <laughs> yeah, um, be sure that'd, be, that'd be a couple of us that are interested in seeing the answers to these <laughs> questions. No doubt, but uh, we'd like to invite all of our listeners to be sure to tune into the Falcons draft coverage this Thursday. Uh, Wes, thank you greatly for your time. We look forward to tuning in this fall to your radio broadcast on 92.9 The Game. And as always, rise up. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. Great interview there from Falcons play-by-play broadcaster Wes Durham. Uh, a lot of great insight from him on what, the, what to expect from the Falcons as they select at the number four overall pick. But it is officially draft week. That's right. We have been waiting a long time to see how this thing goes down. With me to discuss are Chris and Blake. Guys, how are we doing? We're doing well, man. I just cannot wait for this draft to get to just get going and see what exactly happens. You know, for the last two months, we've been listening to the great voices of guys like Dan Orvlosky and Peter Schrager try, trying to predict what's going to happen. I just cannot wait to absolutely see it. I'm nervous. I'm nervous and scared. But, you know, that comes with it. Being a sports fan isn't always easy. Um, you know, and this is the first time for our Falcons that we've been able to pick inside the top five since Matt Ryan in 2008 so it's been a long time coming and uh you know um it'll be interesting to see what terry Fontenot and arthur smith do and i'm excited to get into that with you guys well let's get into it uh so this draft is a little bit unusual in the fact that for the first three picks we know for a fact they are going to be quarterbacks uh trevor lawrence is an absolute gimme to jacksonville zach wilson looks like he's going to be headed off to the meadowlands and then uh, you know who knows who the niners are going to select mac jones is the favorite as of right now um, but Blake, I'll start with you. Do you think Mac is a sure thing headed out to San Fran? I've been very high on Mac Jones for a long time. I said prior to this last season that I think that Mac Jones very well could be in Heisman contention. And, you know, it was cool seeing him get that opportunity uh, as his teammate Devontae Smith ended up winning the award. But hell of a year for Mac Jones, and he boosted his stock up potentially. And uh, it seems like Kyle Shanahan is destined to take this guy. But in the interview with Wes Durham, he kind of opened our eyes a little bit. Maybe this isn't a sure thing. He said that he talked to uh, someone around the league that said, Kyle Shanahan is enamored by Trey Lance. Um, I know Mac Jones is a minus 275 favorite to go to San Francisco at number three, but it'll be very interesting to see if, uh, you know, they end up pulling the trigger there. Yeah, I have gone on each side of this debate back when we kind of thought it was just Mac Jones and Fields once they initially traded up and kind of started with, the, oh, no way, you're going to trade all this future for Mac Jones. Gone back like, oh, maybe they are doing it for Mac Jones. Gone back to Fields. I threw a little bit of a bet on Fields. And, I mean, just by the odds, though, it's I mean, it's looking like Mac Jones as he's sitting at minus 275. And then, of course, this week, the Trey Lance <laughs> gets thrown into it. So, I mean, betting-wise, it looks like Mac Jones, but this is – this is where the draft starts, I guess. Yeah, this is what Chris and I have been talking about for a while is that, 
are you going to give up all that draft capital to get to the number three pick and then take a guy who a lot of people had mocked outside of the top five, also who lacks mobility? And my question is, if Roger Goodell does say Mac Jones on Thursday night, how much is Mac Jones as an upgrade from Jimmy Garoppolo? That's the question I have to ask. So, I've who has never, not been a bad quarterback? For exactly. So I've he took never him to a Super Bowl, guys. I mean, when he's healthy, you right? Know. And you know, Mac Jones, though, you got to consider the Matt Ryan comparison. It keeps coming up, and I do really believe the game manager aspect of Mac Jones is really important. And I think Kyle Shanahan is inclined to probably roll with someone like that. Um, but again, who the hell knows? Who knows? No, no one really. Uh, but we, we'll find out Thursday night. Um, I'll be very interested to see who Shanahan takes. No one really knows what the 49ers are going to do, but I think everyone's going to back whoever they take. Uh, with, with, you know, rookie quarterback's going to perform well in that system. Um, but we'll move on to our hometown team, the Atlanta Falcons selecting at number four. So throughout this whole offseason, it's been about, well, are the Falcons going to take a quarterback and sit them behind Ryan? Will they take the best available? Will they take defensive player? At this point, with number four overall pick, we talked to Chad Forbes, whose interview we will uh, play for you in a little bit, but he doesn't see a uh, defensive player going in the top ten. So it's very, very unlikely at this point that the Falcons do take a defensive player. But with that being said, it's pretty much at this point Kyle Pitts or a quarterback, I think. Uh, that's the way the odds makers view it right now. Kyle Pitts is about uh, minus 170 to go to the Falcons. They're in love with this guy, no doubt about it. But – the key is, where, what kind of outlook do Terry and Arthur Smith see for this team in the future? Do they want to, to uh, take the quarterback at number four? Because, I mean, who knows? When, when are we going to be selecting in the top five again? No one knows. But Blake and I have been talking for a while. Kyle Pitts is the guy. I mean, we love this guy. We don't want him to take a quarterback. But, Blake, tell me why he's the right pick. He's the unicorn, right, like Chad said. Um, and – he really is a unicorn. You know, you can't really put him in a position group, you know, and with this Julio Jones, you know, noise that's kind of going on right now, I know it's not significant enough yet. We haven't even heard anyone truly making an offer, but they are fielding calls for number 11. So, you know, if Julio's on the move and we we're at number four, we've got to take a guy that's going to be able to come in and make an impact immediately. And I think I told you earlier, Ford, I think that Kyle Pitts is an eight to 12 touchdown kind of guy year one he's Darren Waller but with more athleticism the guy can do it all and you know I've heard from a lot of other people saying maybe he can't block maybe he can't do this who knows again everything that I've seen on paper and on film from him he was torching SEC defenses last year and the majority of these players that are in the draft for God's sake guys Eric Stokes out of Georgia you got Tyson Campbell coming in you got um you know uh Patrick Sertan JC Horn guys that you know Kyle played against and he lit it up. He lit it up at the University of Florida. So I would love for Arthur and Terry to get a guy in Kyle Pitts who really is the most interesting prospect that I can recall in the draft in a very long time. I'm really excited to see what they do. But ultimately, you know, being the favorite, I'm sure that with it being the Falcons, it's probably going to end up being someone else just because in, in reality – I just don't know. I don't know how I feel about Terry Fontenot going into this draft. I don't know enough about him. And, um, you know, I just kind of have to wait and see and hope that, you know, Arthur Blank made the right decision with who he brought in to run the team. 
Yeah, I mean, you could argue this is the most uh, entertaining pick of the draft. Yeah. Uh, I mean, whether or not they go Pitts, a quarterback, or as we just discussed, maybe a team is waiting to see who goes at three to trade up uh, with the Falcons at four. But, I mean, at the end of the day, if the Falcons get just get a, a damn good football player at four, right. I think you can call it a win. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no denying that Pitts is probably the best player that's, you know, in this draft, in my opinion, aside from maybe Trevor Lawrence, who lit it up at Clemson. But position player, not even a question to me. Kyle Pitts is the best player in the draft. I agree. And, you know, we're really going to have that question answered of how does Terry see this organization performing in the future? Does he want to go for a long-term investment and a rookie quarterback? Or is does he want a sure thing in Kyle Pitts, who is just an absolute monster? I mean, this guy, the most – ecstatic stat that I've seen about him is that 92% of the balls he caught at Florida last season were either a first down or a touchdown. Insane. Uh, that's something I want on my team. So we hope Terry makes the right decision, but we shall find out very, very soon. Um, but for the rest, rest of the top 10, we got the Bengals selecting at number five, the Dolphins at six after that trade back. Um, and then Lions, Panthers, who we got in nine? Broncos? Broncos, and then the Cowboys will round out the top 10. Uh, what's one player that you see is a perfect fit of this uh, remaining top five? Well, to be quite honest, remaining top five, it's a coin flip for me between uh, stud receiver Jamar Chase down in the bayou at LSU. Um, I think that Jamar Chase, you know, is the clear-cut number one receiver in this draft. What he did with Joe Burrow and that Joe Brady offense the year that they went undefeated and won the national championship was unbelievable. He sat out last season. Um, inactivity would be the only reason I could see him maybe slipping out of the top five, but I don't believe that's going to happen. I think the one that may slide a little bit is uh, Oregon offensive tackle Panay Sewell. I don't really know why he's kind of been sliding in some of these most recent mocks I've seen. Um, he is probably the most athletic tackle in this draft. Um, he's got the highest upside and he's 20 years old for God's sakes. So he's got so much room for growth, but if I had a pick at number five and I was the Bengals, it's a tough one because, you know, you got to think about Burrow being the quarterback in Cincinnati, pairing him back up with Jamar Chase would be pretty special reuniting the two. Um, or you go get a, a solidified tackle that's going to come in and protect Burrow who's coming off a season ending injury last year. So it's a little bit of a toss up. That is a uh, – yeah, that would be a cool fit for sure. I'm looking at number seven, uh, Detroit. Uh, guy, Matt Campbell, Dan Campbell. Dan Campbell is coming in, and he is just fired up. He's preaching culture, you know. He's uh, talking about the trenches and whatnot. I kind of like him to either go with – maybe if Sewell falls, I feel like Detroit, you know, would feel blessed that he fell into their hands. And I don't exactly want to predict an edge them to them just because they resigned Romeo Okora, but uh, Quiddy Pay from Michigan, a, a great uh, – a great culture guy, all Big Ten, honor roll, great story. I feel like he's a dude that they could really bring in to set a foundation for what they're trying to do in Detroit. So is that the only defensive guy you got going in the top ten? Because I don't, I don't necessarily want to mock him there because with Detroit losing, uh, it's just somewhere I can see fitting. Uh, with them losing Marvin Jones and Kenny Colladay, you yeah. know, like they don't have any receivers. So, I mean – it's not surprising if they do go get a Waddle or a Devontae Smith or someone like that. Well, I mean, today, guys, before we started recording, also, we found out that the Lions made an attempt to try to trade up with the Atlanta Falcons at number four to go after Jamar Chase is the report. Um, you know, you wonder if that's a true, you know, true report or not. This time of year, you know, again, you get all these guys that are trying to put on a front and make people think that they want someone, even though maybe they don't, they want another player, right? 
So Detroit needs receivers, but Pay is an interesting guy. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested to see where he exactly goes. Um, I do think Patrick Sertan finds a way in the top 10. Um, if not Patrick Sertan, J.C. Horn, I think that the two of those guys, again, coin flip type players because the athleticism, the, the ability to play press coverage, the ability, you know, to play against elite players at the SEC level like they did and shut down elite receivers. I think you can't mess up with one of those guys personally. Um, I think Sertan at number 10 to the Cowboys, if they stay put there, it's rumored they may be interested in trading back as well. But if they stay put, they need to go after that guy, even though they went after Trayvon Diggs last year. Um, they got to upgrade that defense as soon as possible. But they also could be inclined to take a linebacker um, So with Sean Lee retiring, of course. So got to keep an eye on that number 10 spot. It's interesting. And, yeah, I mean, well, to answer what you're saying, and what, what is the over-under on defensive guys in the top 10? Uh, is it one and a half? I don't know if there is one, but I got to believe it's around around one. one and a half, maybe. I would say I mean, one and a half. Or I'm so. looking at it right now. Each of these teams, five through ten, I mean, could either desperately use a linebacker or a cornerback. When you're talking about Parsons yeah. or guys like Sertan or Horn, so I, I mean, I definitely could see at least two, maybe three defensive players in the top ten. That would just kind of push out some of these guys that we've already mocked in the top ten. So part of the fun, right? Well, let's talk about one more thing before we get into our props. So one of these quarterbacks, there's going to be five that are going. Vegas has the over-under for quarterbacks in the first round at five and a half. I think it'll be right at five. One, one of these four or five quarterbacks are going to slide, whether it be Trey Lance, whether it be Justin Fields, who knows. But, Chris, my question for you is, could we finally see the Patriots move up and take a quarterback? So I'm going to go with no. I mean, Bill's never been a guy to move up. Um, he's always been a guy to kind of – really, other than this quarterback position, when Tom Brady has left, he's always been a guy that's addressed uh, position needs kind of before they uh, show light to themselves. And I think that's kind of the route he's going to follow in a sense. I think he's going to take a guy like Zayvon Collins uh, to understudy the, uh, Dante Hightower or a guy like J.C. Horn to understudy Stephon Gilmore, two guys who may be on their way out in New England. Uh, but, no, I do not see Bill going up. Maybe, I guess, if his quarterback falls to him at 15. But it's just – I feel like that's going to be something that they're going to address next year if Cam does not have a good year. You mentioned linebacker also. And, I mean, right now we're looking at highlights of uh, Jeremiah Usa koromaya I think is how you pronounce his name, from Notre Dame. Very athletic, uh, can cover, can do everything that you ask for. And, you know, why wouldn't Bill Belichick want a guy like that as well? You know, you have Cam Newton back. And Chris said yesterday, and he made a great point, that – Bill Belichick used to spend a lot of time with Tom Brady game planning, uh, Belichick being the genius defensive-minded uh, coach that he is, um, really just working to try to, you know, game plan. And the Patriots won so much, and you got to think year two with Cam Newton cannot possibly be worse than it was last year. That passing season was one of the worst in NFL history, and Cam Newton can still play. Um, you know, he showed last year at times that he can still play, right? So I think that Quarterback for the Patriots is a possibility. Um, we're not going to find that out, though, until, you know, probably draft night because I think the only way that they move up is if one of those quarterbacks, like Wes Durham said, ends up sliding. Um, Trey Lance, for say. Maybe a Justin Fields. Um, I just don't think that quarterback is their number one priority. But, again, it would be very unlike Belichick to trade up and do something like that. But, again – who knows? This draft is so uncertain, and it's what makes the draft so exciting, guys. Well, let's get into some of the props we like. So uh, if anybody has taken a look at Bovada, they provide yeah. any prop that you could possibly want. 
uh, for this year's draft. We got uh, trifectas of wide receivers. We got exact outcome of picks three, four, and five. Uh, go take you a look because they have everything. But Blake, I'll start with you. What is a couple props that just jump right off the page for you? Well, for me, the first one that I'm looking at right now is, and I know it's not going to actually affect the first round per se, because you have uh, Javante Williams running back from uh, the University of North Carolina. Um, that's probably going to end up going uh, round two or three per se. But I think that Najee Harris is going to go number one when it comes to running backs. I think he's going to end up to the Pittsburgh Steelers at number 24 to come in and replace uh, James Conner, who was injury prone and showed flashes of being a really good running back at times, but just couldn't really put it together. And they're going to be dependent on the run game next year. They have to run the ball in order to succeed with that offense, in my opinion. I think Travis Etienne, number two. And then Javante Williams is going to be the third running back taken. And you can get that on Bovada at plus 175. That's a really interesting prop for me. Um, not a ton of, you know, not a ton of juice on it, per se, at plus 175. But, you know, I think that's worth looking at. And then the one other one that I saw uh, was a Joe Osborne pick. But um, Chris and I were talking about this, and I know Ford and I as well. But Jamar Chase and then Najee Harris and Panay Sewell for the first wide receiver, first running back, and first offensive lineman drafted in the exact order. I think that's very likely. You get that at minus 130. Um, I think that's very likely. I think Panay Sewell is solidified going to be the number one offensive lineman taken in this draft. Najee Harris, to me, it's really if you prefer Najee or, or Etienne, personal preference, I think Najee is going to be an unbelievable running back. Not that Etienne won't, but I would slide with Najee. And again, we've already heard the Lions are trying to move up to take a guy like Jamar Chase because they're scared the Bengals are going to take him at five. So I think at minus 130, you know, you take that and then you take the uh, first three running backs drafted with Najee, Etienne, and then Javante Williams. You, you're looking at a potential profitable day. One, Chris, what do you got? One thing I'm going to kind of hammer the drum on is uh, Gregory Russo going over about 27 and a half, really anything outside of the first round. And I think, I don't think too many guys, major guys are going to be hurt by COVID uh, or by sitting out the season, but I think he will be one just because he didn't play and he did not follow up with a good pro day. He was not good at all on his pro day. Yeah. And I don't know, there's a little bit of questions around there. I feel like I could see him slipping. A guy I mentioned a minute ago, Zayvon Collins, so I believe he'll be an inside linebacker. He's very fast. He's a very big dude. Under 24 and a half, I mentioned the Patriots maybe a team. There's also a bunch of other linebacker needy teams there. He could end up being linebacker too. Um, after that, uh, I'll roll with my boy, my boy Tevin Jenkins, uh, offensive tackle at Oklahoma State. Dude's a physical, physical, physical man. Um, and the Jets are picking a 23. The Jets need another tackle. Um, and he is a guy who could play guard, even though I don't think he has to by any means. Uh, I don't think he slides past 23 in this draft. I want to say one thing real quick, guys. Could the Washington football team be interested in a quarterback whatsoever this year? They could. Um, you know, rolling out Ryan Fitzpatrick and Taylor Heineke as your, uh, as your day one starter is a little bit concerning. But, you know, me and Chris talked about this a while back. I think they're going to be a little bit uh, standoffish just because of what they did a couple of years ago with Dwayne Haskins. I mean, that was an absolute bust. I think that they're going to just – Kind of stay put, uh, ro reload other positions, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see, I don't see it. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, they gave Heineke, I think, a couple a multi-year deal. Not that they can't get out of it by any means, but right. just when you have a guy like him and Fitzpatrick, you know, you don't feel too bad about your quarterback room, especially with the way they were able to make the playoffs last year. Right, for sure. Uh, and yeah, I, I love what the football team is doing. I would, I would like for them to uh, just 
load up that depth chart and get a line DBs. later. Yeah. Um, but one uh, prop that I like is uh, total offensive players, 18 and a half. I know this is a high number, but if we've seen anything in the past couple of years, these offensive coaches love their toys. They love their uh, playmakers. And, you know, the over-under for offensive linemen is set at six and a half. And from what I've seen, I see that people are taking the over on that. So if, you, if the over hits on those offensive linemen, this offensive player is drafted in the first round is going to hit 19 or 20. Um, so I like that prop. Total running backs selected in the first round. I'm going to take the under one and a half. Uh, like Blake said, I do like either Harris or Etienne to go in the first round. However, I just don't see each of them going. I don't see two running backs selected. Um, last year, we thought there wasn't going to be a single running back selected in the first round until pick 32. I think you're going to get something uh, relatively similar, um, but I do see a team selecting at least one uh, in either Harris or ETN, considering w whatever preference they have. Um, but that's about all I got for props. Uh, and any real value picks you guys like for uh, maybe draft positions? Um, so we'll, we'll hang around that two, three, four range, I guess. A good value pick, I think, is going to be Panay Sewell, Sewell to be taken four. I believe we were looking at him at about 1,800 to 1,900 uh, mm -hmm. to the Falcons. Say the Falcons go that offensive line route. Uh, I mentioned I was able to get Fields. I, what is he now? About 400-ish. I think he's back up to like four or five, 600. Something like that. You know, if – I mean, I'm going to stick by it, my initial thoughts and roll with Fields at three so you can get him about a plus 500. Um, I think that's, that's all I got. And then what we could give RH a shout-out if – I mean, the Jets have not come out and said that they're taking Zach Wilson, even though the odds strongly suggest it. So maybe taking him at, uh, like our boy Ryan Harris did, uh, at three at like plus 3,500, that could be some value. Now, I don't know if uh, – I, I haven't seen the number on this at all, and I'm not sure if it's available on Bovada or not, or not, but based on what I'm seeing right now with the amount of props, which is absolutely absurd how many they have on here. But um, I would like – I, and, you know, again, this is subjective because it's based on preference, but I think Aziz Ojolari is the first edge rusher taken in this draft. Um, I've watched so much of his film over the last couple of weeks, and everything that I see about Ojolari jumps off the page for me. Athletic, can play inside even if you want to move him in there and kind of just mess around with him depending on the scheme that he goes in. That's a dude that could creep up into the top 13 um, what was his over-under at, 25 and a half or something along? So, yeah. Right. So, you know, I think there's a, a really, really good chance that he gets a little bit of buzz behind him. He's got so much room for growth also. So I love Ojolari. I think that's a high-value pick. And uh, the more time that I look into this, uh, this draft, and I know it may not be in the first round, but I, I know he's coming off an injury, but I think someone's going to overdraft Landon Dickerson. Dickerson could end up sliding into the first round. I think he's one of the best interior offensive linemen in this draft. His over-unders at 36 and a half. Later on in the draft, I could see a team like maybe the Chiefs or maybe someone like that just going ahead and getting a guy. Um, you know, you have so much uh, ability to go in there and just take, you know, anyone you want. The Bengals are high in the second round if they don't go uh, O-line. Right. And, you know, that's – more than likely, I do think that the Bengals are probably going to take a guy like a Jamar Chase. So um, I think that, you know, looking offensive line for a team specifically like the Bengals, looking, looking like a, uh, a, a, at 35 with the Atlanta Falcons to replace Alex Mack, um, how much do the Falcons really love Matt Hennessy, who they drafted last year? Who knows, right? So this is a new coaching core in Atlanta, new general manager. 
it's it's up to them. They can do whatever they want. So I like Landon Dickerson. And then, uh, you know, for what it's worth, plus 250 with Trey Lance going number three overall to um, to the San Francisco 49ers. I think that could be interesting because we talked with West Durham, like I said earlier, and he did say that, again, Kyle Shanahan is truly fascinated with Trey Lance. But you have to remember, he only played one game last year against Central Arkansas. So who really knows what that guy can do? But uh, West Durham threw out a Patrick Mahomes comparison, um, which is, you know, that's saying a lot. And Wes has seen a lot of football. So I don't think that that's a bad bet at about plus 250, lay about 20, 30 bucks on that. And uh, maybe, maybe just take the risk, right? Yeah. Uh, last one I'll follow up with. I do like the one that Chris mentioned with the value with Sewell at number four. Um, but one pick I like is the exact outcome of pick three, four, and five. Uh, you got Jones, Pitts, and Sewell at about plus 275. Uh, Jones is expected to be the number three overall pick. Pitts is selected at, or uh, expected at four. Basically, what you're banking off of is Sewell going to the Bengals. As long as they don't take Chase, I think that this uh, has some good value for what it's worth. Um, but other than that, like Blake said, there's definitely – You can we do a little, little bonus segment? Ooh. Sure. That'd be fun. Uh, I think we owe it to the listeners. Yeah. A little bonus segment. This something I'm thinking about is just uh, – and ma- mainly this is uh, through Twitter uh, – is the fan base wars that could come out of some of the selections in the first round. Obviously, with the Falcons, we have, you know, the – the stay with Matt Ryan train or the, you know, select quarterback train, the Bengals. I've seen uh, their fans on Twitter a lot uh, with uh, we need to protect Joe, Bor- uh, Joe Burrow or, Oh, we need a, like, we need a weapon. And we lo- he loves Jamar Chase uh, type rivalry. And then obviously the Niners, I it, and the Niners, it just seems like Kyle Shanahan versus Niners fans. Yeah. Um, with, cause I, there's not too many Niners fans out there that I think are beating the drum for Mac Jones. Yeah. So just something to note as we, uh, see the picks happen and you have to consider with the you know that you mentioned the 49ers I know we spent a lot of time talking about the Falcons so I'm kind of going to focus on the 49ers a little bit here that fan base with what they what what they did to move up with a quarterback like Jimmy Garoppolo on your roster who you know two seasons ago took them to the Super Bowl I just do not really know what's going to happen there um you know you have to assume it's quarterback why else would they move up in front of a team like the Falcons you know a at Detroit Lions who could be potentially looking there um you know you had number eight with the Panthers right so it's interesting to think about but maybe the 49ers you know have a have a war with which quarterback they take um you know whether it's Trey Lance Justin Fields Matt Jones whoever it may be um someone's not going to be happy and that happens every single draft someone ends up out there let down whether it's a beat writer crying on the internet or whatever it may be right but the one that's really interesting guys is the Bengals and Chris just mentioned it but that fan base is going to go at each other's necks eventually because Joe Burrow is your franchise quarterback you drafted him number one overall after having a absolutely abysmal season and ultimately when it comes down to it right now for me I actually completely forgot that the team had T Higgins still, right? So T Higgins and Joe Burrow's connection was special last year at one point, and you still have Tyler Boyd. And I think that, you know, if I'm, I'm the Bengals, now that I, now that I mentioned that I'd take Jamar Chase, I'm kind of thinking more like Sewell now too, because if you're the general manager of that team, you got to protect your franchise quarterback. So it's a tough, tough move. And I actually think that the two hardest positions to pick in this draft are at number four, and number five, even though San Francisco is going to have a tough call, but Shanahan went to the Super Bowl two years ago, so he's got a little leeway with that fan base. It's so ironic. Uh, the Bengals just released their new uniform uh, 
pictures and in the in the uniform pictures you see this scar on Joe Burrow's knee from his torn oh, ACL. Man. It's just it's like irony happening. Right. It's it, it is interesting, but they have to take care of that guy because in order for him to succeed, you know, he's got to stay upright and that won't happen if they don't take an offensive lineman whether it's in the first or the second round. So, got to keep an eye on that team. They're going to be interesting in the draft. Yeah, no doubt about it. And we cannot wait to see what happens Thursday night when Roger Goodell walks to the podium. Um, but we hope you can take advantage of some of these props we've given out. I hope you can cash them out. Um, but we will now move on to our interview with NFL draft guru, Chad Forbes. Uh, Chad has been doing draft analysis for many years now. He is on uh, Twitter with great analysis. And we spoke with him back in February about his outlook for what is to come this weekend. Um, so here he is, Chad Forbes. We now welcome on Chad Forbes. He is on Twitter with the handle at NFL Draft Bites. Chad, welcome to Division Two Sports. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm up in New York where we've got about two feet of snow, so it's nice to be talking some football right now. Yes, sir. Well, Chad, you've been evaluating talent and analyzing pro football for some time now. Um, could you fill our listeners in on a little bit more of what your day-to-day looks like and how you got started? Sure. I just started doing this as a hobby covering just like basically the draft and it kind of morphed into something a little bit bigger. And, uh, you know, so I still do that. I don't really write for any site. I just use my Twitter handle and I publish stuff through like Google Docs and uh, just like to you know, talk to people like yourselves and kind of exchange ideas and have opinions. So that's kind of who I am. And if you want to follow me, just give me one of the NFL draft bites. Yeah, absolutely, Chad. I've been following you now for some time. I love the coverage. And uh, Chad, you've been evaluating talent and analyzing pro football for some time now. So um, you know, I'd really like to get a little bit more insight on how you evaluate NFL talent. What goes into the thought process when you're looking at a 20, 21, 22-year-old guy coming out of college? I think the most important thing is to understand what's going on in the NFL game and what's winning, and then try to find talent that fits into those types of systems. And obviously other factors go into it. You know, is the hard work of the guy, does he come from the right program, all those things. But it's really about finding guys that fit what is today's NFL, and it just keeps evolving the game so the kind of prospects that you're looking for over time has changed with that right um and i know some of what you do has to do with mock drafts um so how do you really go about making those mock drafts and revising it closer to draft day um based off surfacing reports leading up to april you know, i keep a board really starting in august where i go through and kind of put down all the guys that i think have a chance to be drafted from the major schools and then start taking the small school prospects There's, you know, a bunch of different services. Then there's Senior Bowl that also highlights, you know, 200 to 300 kids that you should take a look at. So I try to watch as many of those, and I kind of keep my board throughout the year. And over time, just keep kind of massaging it based on, you know, new information or watching a kid more extensively. And then, like, right now, I've got, you know, all the kids that are declared put on to, you know, a Google Excel spreadsheet, you know, all positions across the board uh, that are in this draft. You know, kind of rank kind of 1 through 50 at basically every position. Right now, Chad, I want to go ahead and I want to jump into 2021's draft. It's very exciting going ahead and obviously speculating about some of the guys that are going to be entering the draft. Um, This class is loaded with quarterbacks, and many people believe that there will be probably three to four selected in the first five picks. Aside from Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence, who we know are spectacular players, which quarterbacks pique your interest the most in this year's draft? Zach Wilson from BYU and then Trey Lance from North Dakota State are are in that discussion with Justin Fields right after Trevor Lawrence from Clemson. And, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that three or four of them go in the top five. I think Fields probably 
falls a little bit come draft day. And, and I think Lance is the guy that's going to have some helium where he starts to rise up in terms of the, the media mock drafts. I think he's much more highly thought of in league circles than he is really by the media. And a lot of it with him is that he's only played one game this year against Central Arkansas, and he didn't look that great. But if you look at really the talent, you start to say, wow, this kid's really enticing, and maybe he needs a year to develop. So I think locally a team that's definitely interested in is the Falcons. That's Trey Lance, North Dakota State. Well, Chad, let's jump over to the other side of the ball. Um, this year, in terms of the quarterback position, there's really only one, Mr. Patrick Sertans out of Alabama. Um, with him really being the only top-tier guy in that position, what other prospects can you tell us about? Um, you know, Caleb Farley's been in the conversation with Sertan for, you know, the top quarterback. He opted out, so there's less tape on him. And then there's Tyson Campbell from Georgia that I think could end up going in the first round. And then J.C. Horn from South Carolina. I also like Asante Samuel Jr., who – his father played in the league for probably a decade from Florida State. So there's some pretty good corner talent. I, I don't think the day two corners are really that exciting. And you're starting to see some guys get pushed up that, you know, Aaron Robinson from UCF that people are getting excited about. And it's going to be a really interesting year to kind of evaluate corners because it's a position that's so predicated on speed. You know, without the time to be the combine, it's going to be a little bit of a crapshoot in terms of trying to project where they go because everybody always says, oh, trust the tape, trust the tape. But then all of a sudden, you know, the corners that run 4-5, they go in the fourth or fifth round. The corners that run 4-3, you know, they vault up into the first round. So that's going to be an interesting position to develop. And, and just overall, looking at the defensive guys in this draft, I actually don't think a defensive player will go in the top ten. Really? Uh, that, that's, uh, that's very surprising. You know, Parsons, obviously, from Penn State, jumps off the page a little bit to me. Um, and then, you know, even with, with Sertan, I could even maybe see a team, you know, being corner desperate and end up making a, making a move on him, pulling the trigger there in the top 10. You really don't see anybody going in the top 10, though? You know, I say I don't see it where maybe yeah, Parsons could go there or Russo or one of the corners being, you know, Sertan or Farley. But just, just looking at the teams and the, what they kind of – I know the Falcons have a big defensive team, but I don't see a defensive player that warrants the fourth overall pick. So unless they're trading down, I think they're going to go offense there. And I do think it's going to come down to quarterback or trading down. So I just, you know, we're working through a mock draft today that I'm going to publish pretty soon. And the first defensive player I had coming off the board was actually 11 to the Giants. And that was Rousseau, the edge rusher from Miami. Right. And Rousseau is a guy whose name has been floating around our hometown team, the Atlanta Falcons, a little bit if they were to trade back. So I want to talk a little bit more about our hometown team and the Falcons. So they'll select their guy at number four as of now, unless they were to trade back. But we obviously hired uh, general manager Terry Fontenot and head coach Arthur Smith. Well, what do you see the Falcons doing with those moves at this pick? Do you see trading back as an option for the Dirty Birds? Yeah, I think it's going to come down to be a quarterback with the idea that he sits a year behind Ryan and is the answer in 2022 or, or the guy. But I, you know, I think they brought Arthur Smith in to try to figure out if Matt Ryan could kind of have that resurgence season the way Aaron Rodgers did this past year for the Packers. Not saying that he's going to be back in the MVP conversation, but can he still win with a 36-year-old Matt Ryan is really the question. And you know, you're not really helping the team if you take a quarterback and decide to sit him for a year. And it, it, the NFL's just evolved a little bit. I know that the Chiefs sat Mahomes for a year, but when you draft a kid in the top 10, you're going to try to play him right away. So I think the best situation for the Falcons is to try to trade down for somebody that wants Trey Lance or wants Justin Fields or maybe the BYU quarterback Zach Wilson gets there and start to accumulate some picks and really try to rebuild the roster. Right. And I think you're on to someone there, Chad. Uh, me and Blake discuss this all the time. We, we really would like for the um, Falcons to trade back and bulk up on the defensive side of the ball. It was interesting to me because it, it's interesting to four. You take Trey Lance from North Dakota State. You sit him for a season. And there's going to be a lot of chatter about it. See if he's represented by the same group that Matt Ryan is. Maybe you know, Matt will be open to being a mentor with the idea that they'll make him a free agent after the season. But 
if you miss on Trey Lance and you get rid of Matt Ryan after year one, after you know, after the rookie season, basically these two guys will have lost their jobs on picking a quarterback who played one game this year against Central Arkansas and started maybe 13 or 14 college games. So it's a big risk to man. And that's why I think you want to trade that pick someone like San Francisco, who's already kind of established their program and says we can take some time to develop the quarterback. Right. And uh, the draft order is pretty much set uh, with the Super Bowl looming, just waiting on picks 31 and 32. Um, but with, with it said, which teams do you see on the cusp of making a jump if they can put together a decent draft class? You know, the Jets have so much capital that have, and they could borrow the new coaching staff. Whether they go with Sam Darnold or another quarterback, I think they're going to improve. Uh, you know, the teams that are picking in the top 10, you know, which one next year has a chance to go to the playoffs? You know, if Arthur Smith can get Matt Ryan figured out the way he did with Ryan Tannehill, like, let's see the Falcons get back there. They obviously have some issues with their roster, not a lot of cap space, work depth, which is you know, a huge issue. But, uh, you know, I see them taking a big step. And then it just comes down to who figures out quarterback, whether it's, you know, the Denver Broncos, 49ers, you know. It wouldn't be much to say the 49ers are going to bounce back given their talent on that roster. And they were the Super Bowl team, you know, a couple of years ago, so a year ago. So you know, those are the teams that jumped out to me just kind of off the surface. Right, and I want to shift back to the defensive side of the ball again. I know you said that you don't have anybody that really jumps off the page to you. Um, but you mentioned a guy who I really like in Gregory Russo. Um, can you elaborate what makes Russo such an effective edge rusher? Uh, highly productive, six foot six, long, can bend. You know the idea that you, you see some of these people in the media that are saying, you know, Quip Pay from Michigan or Azurier from Georgia are better pass rushers. To me, it's you know, ludicrous. He's the combination, full combination. It looks like Jason Pierre-Paul, except bigger, longer. He's uh, he's to me one of the. If he played this season, I think he'd be much more highly thought of as an edge rush prospect. Right. And, uh, Chad, we see this, we see kind of this idea happen every year where there are players that sneak up draft boards based on their combine performance or their pro day. Um, so is there a player or players who stick out to you that you see climbing up draft boards um, ahead and, of the draft? Know, yeah, you know, I'd say that the guys that I'm looking at right now are the underclassmen who are kind of surprise declarations. And I always say, one of, some of the great value in the draft is whether you sign an undrafted kid out of the SEC or you take one late in the draft. There's a Bryce Thompson. He's a cornerback from Tennessee. It started for three years, came out as a junior. He's real interesting. Anthony Hines is the inside linebacker from Texas A&M. These are two underclassmen that declared for this draft. Maybe with the uncertainty of, you know, will there be a season next year with COVID? Just kind of some uncertainty. You can't really understand why they why they declared. Some people will say they weren't ready for this year's draft, but if you can, you know, one of them to get time well or you know, really have a good pro day performance. I could see one of them going a little bit higher. Right. And you mentioned COVID. This was certainly a strange season, maybe the strangest in college football history with the COVID protocols and everything that happened this season. So obviously a lot of guys actually ended up opting out of the season. And some of those are some really sought after prospects, including Jamar Chase, Sewell, the lineman from Oregon, Jamie Newman, obviously the Wake Forest man, uh, and a couple of others. But what affects these guys in making that decision and how does it affect them in the draft process are they going to lose any of you know the credibility that they had by sitting out the year you know i don't think anybody's going to judge their decision in terms of you know thinking that they're for example like soft or something they opted out for COVID. everybody has their reasons i just think it's uncertainty and it makes it more of a gamble i take a guy like joe Tryon, who's the edge rush for washington that opted out he's put some flashes on tape when he was a sophomore but now you're drafting him a year off that he hasn't shown any development. Or a guy like Jalen Twyman from Pitt. You know, you can just see with all these people, the rankings that are coming out from whether it's you know, the athletic or whoever, you know, PFF, 
you know, Twyman had ten and a half sacks as an interior defensive lineman at Pitt. People were saying he was a first round pick if he came out last year. So now all of a sudden you're seeing him in round three or so, you know, he's down on people's boards because he opted out. You know, I think that the guys that had pretty good tape their sophomore year or the year prior when they, when they opted in or when they played normally, I don't think we should ding them that much. It's one of the guys that had some uncertainty where he said, like, Joe Tryon, he needs to start to put it all together. Very talented. So I think it hurts a guy like Tryon who doesn't have great tape. But the guys like Rousseau and Twyman, I, I don't really think it's that big of an issue. Right. And, uh, Chad, let's talk a little bit about the running back position because it's something to monitor, um, especially with last year. Last year we only saw one running back taken off the board on night one and at the last selection of the first round. Um, do you think we'll see more in the first round this year with highly touted prospects like Etienne and Harris coming off miraculous college careers? Here's how I look at it. I think the salary cap coming down from 196 to 176 is going to make the running back position, if you, if you need to fill it, you're going to go into free agency and try to get a guy that's going to be pretty cheap. There's going to be backs that can play in the NFL. You can get on the veterans minimum. And there's going to be guys out there like Gurley, Le'Veon Bell, veteran guys who are going to be cheap compared to filling kind of like the expensive premium positions like defensive end, pass rushers, left tackles. So I think that's going to naturally push the running backs down the board more than it would in normal years where teams are going to say, you know, I got I couldn't afford the pass rusher in free agency. For example, Falcons just go there. You know, I can't afford to go out and get another pass rusher. We're not happy with Dante Fowler. We didn't have any money to spend in free agency. we got to swing on a pass rusher right about to. Sure, we like Najee Harris, but, you know, we can sign a back that you know, can get the job done and then maybe take one on day three. So I think that's going to really push the running backs down, whether it's ETN, Najee Harris, Javante Williams from UNC. And, uh, you know, I think people are going to be saying, oh, it's the, you know, the, the narrative that running backs don't go in the first round anymore. The NFL's evolved, analytics. But I think it's going to be more that there's just so many backs out there that are, that are free agents that you can sign for, you know, a couple million bucks. And meanwhile, if you tried to allocate $2 million to find a pass rusher, I mean, you're not finding anything. So that's what I think is going to be the running back discussion in this year's draft. Yeah, and Arthur Smith obviously has ties as well with uh, UNC. So it would make a little bit of sense to reunite, you know, Javante Williams with Arthur Smith, the UNC guy. And he could use him as that workhorse. And I know people are trying to – say that he'll go away from using the Derrick Henry aspect of his offense that he used in Tennessee so effectively. But I recall Matt Ryan's rookie season where they uh, brought in Michael Turner and it made Matt Ryan much more effective and it made that offensive line just look completely different. And it kept Matt Ryan on his feet, which made him, you know, obviously one of the most successful rookie quarterbacks at the time when he came into the league back in 08. So definitely something to monitor. But Chad, I want to talk a little bit more here about one of my favorite prospects in the draft, Florida tight end Kyle Pitts. Where do you see Kyle Pitts landing come draft day? He's a unicorn, man. He's so interesting. And, you know, people are trying to say he's a tight end. He's, he can do anything on offense, play the big X wide receiver, split out wide, get off press coverage. He does more in the run game in terms of blocking than people give him credit for. He's a really special player. And I, I don't think you can be so specific and say, oh, he's a tight end, and evaluate him separately from you, how you would look at the wide receivers. So I think really at the top of this draft, and I'm a big fan of Kadarius Tony, but I do recognize he's in the second tier. I think you look at the two Alabama wide receivers, Waddle and uh, Devontae Smith, plus the LSU wide receiver, uh, Chase, and evaluate them with Pitts in mind. So you're saying, you know, they all do different things, obviously, and they're different players, but at the end of the day, they're playmakers. Right, and speaking of playmaker, Mac Jones, the counterpart to Devontae Smith's epic Heisman season that was second to none aside from maybe Mr. Desmond Howard back in the day. 
I want to ask you, why is, why is Mac Jones not higher on people's draft boards, given his Joe Burrow-like stats that he had last year at Alabama during his uh, Steve Sarkeesian-ran offense days? I think there's a serious discussion in the NFL about the importance of being able to make plays outside of structure. So when your first, second, third reads aren't there, the prop pocket's breaking down. Can you use your athleticism to extend the play? It's kind of been, you know, we've seen it with like Russell Wilson as an example. And I think some offensive coordinators and play callers now view that skill as, as, a, as important as maybe accuracy. And uh, Mac Jones is not going to make plays outside of structure for you. And my argument to kind of oppose that view is I think that having to make second reaction plays outside of structure really important, if, but it's kind of less critical if you're extremely accurate, which is what Mac Jones showed this year with not just with the accuracy in terms of hitting receivers, but even his ball placement. So no, I think he's a first-round quarterback. Well, that wraps it up for us here at Division Two, Chad. Um, we thank you for your time and your insight. Great insight on the 2021 NFL Draft. Go give Chad a follow at NFL Draft Bites. Um, Chad, we appreciate your coverage and keep up the great work. It was fun, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Division Two Sports. For all Division Two Sports news, follow us on social media at Division underscore Two Sports.